The Gospel reading this morning is Luke 10, verses 1 to 11, and verses 16 to 20. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. For the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. And 16 to 20. Whoever listens to you listens to me. And whoever you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The 70,000 returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Our epistle reading comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians. Chapter 5, verse 1 and then 13 to 25. For freedom... 
Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. But through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government. Reading these unforgettable words written 243 years ago this week, I was once again struck by two, about two remarkable features about the historical context of these words. The first, as, as you all know, they were adopted at a time when the colonies were far from independent. The British military, the most powerful in all the world, controlled most of the colonies, and indeed, before too long, would take over Philadelphia itself. The second remarkable feature is that these words, all men are created equal, and of course it was only men then, with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, were penned by a slaveholder. Throughout his life, Thomas Jefferson would often recognize that slavery was antithetical to the basic rights of every human being. He even had an earlier draft condemning the slave trade. But Jefferson would never seek an end to slavery. He would never free his own slaves, not even at his death as George Washington did. 
Jefferson's example and the example of the other signers of the Declaration of Independence who were also slaveholders reminds us that all Americans, and especially those of us who are Christian, have a duty to close the gap between our ideals and the reality in which we find ourselves. Nearly 2,000 years before Jefferson wrote that Declaration of Independence, Paul wrote an even more succinct but equally revolutionary Declaration of Freedom in his epistle to the churches in Galatia, which was a region in what we now know as the country of Turkey. For freedom, Christ has set us free, Paul writes. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has set us free. For Paul, sin is not just a matter of bad choices or even hurtful actions. Paul understands instead that sin is a power and that Christ is the great liberator who has come to set us free from the power of sin. That does not mean that to become a Christian is to be freed of sin. That's why we confess our sins every week. No, sin's power is tenacious. And we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, as Paul would write in his letter to the Romans. But in Jesus Christ, the door to our prison cell has been thrown open. We no longer need to be imprisoned by the power of sin or live under its power, which in Paul's terms means to live by the flesh. Sin is a power over our lives. You don't have to convince anyone who has battled an addiction or seen a loved one battle an addiction to understand that. Good intentions may be present. The hard work of rehab may have brought relief and seemingly new possibilities, yet how often... Despite those good intentions and rehabs, have the habits and practices of addiction returned? Whether we understand it as chemical reactions in our brain or psychological dependencies or some combination of both, the demons of addiction seemingly can take hold of our lives or those we know and not let go. But it's not just in the form of addictions that we see sin's power. How often have we, in the grip of anger or fear or some other powerful emotion, said or done things that we never would have done or said if we'd only taken a few moments to reflect upon it? How many times have we we felt like what Paul describes in Romans 7, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. How often have we let that core anxiety that we're not good enough on the one hand confine us to a darkness that we want to keep hidden from others or on the other hand drive us into competition with criticism of of others thinking somehow that if we can pull them down we can push ourselves up and prove that we are good enough. All of this kind of behavior and attitude testifies to the power of sin. And it is from that power that Christ has come to set us free, Paul wants us to know. Christ came to declare and demonstrate that we are loved and accepted 
just as we are. We don't need to hide ourselves or prove ourselves for God to begin to love us or even to love us any more than God already does. It is while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us, as Paul tells us. And as Jesus' death on a cross and the empty tomb reveal God's grace, God's love is more powerful than any force of sin or evil or even death. In Christ, we are a new creation because Christ has come to set us free. This is how Paul begins his declaration of freedom, but it's not where he ends it, because he knows there are two dangers when it comes to exercising our freedom. The first danger is that we give it up. We trade it for a yoke. The freedom that Christ offers, we trade for a series of legalistic obligations, a religion of do's and don'ts. When that happens, the focus of our faith becomes more on sin management rather than loving others, more on judgment rather than grace. I've been reading an interesting book this week on the history of the Puritans, and I learned that the word Puritan was actually an epithet given by enemies of the Puritans. It was meant to be an insulting term. The Puritans both in England and here, some of whom were Presbyterians, were not very popular. In case you wonder why that was, perhaps it would be helpful to know that when they actually came to power in England in the 1640s in Parliament, they immediately closed the theaters, banned maypoles, because you know how maypoles can lead to sin, banned the celebration of Christmas, instituted the death penalty for adultery, imposed fines for swearing, and created a formidable list of Sunday activities that were prohibited, including commerce, games, travel, dancing, and singing secular songs. While such a legalistic faith has been a danger for various parts of the church throughout the centuries, That does not seem to be the real pressing problem these days for us. It seems it's more the other danger of which Paul writes, which seems relevant to our times. For you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters, he writes, only do not use your freedom for self-indulgence. When you ask many people living in America or in Western cultures today, what does it mean for you to be free? They often will respond in terms of what we are free from. And so people speak of being freed from government restraint or interference, of being freed from entangling relationships or commitments, of being freed from other people's schedules and limits on our time, of being freed from limits on how we use our money or spend our money or have to worry about money. The idea of freedom then focuses on me, my freedom to do what I want, when I want to do it, without having to worry about any competing obligations on my time or money. That is not true Christian freedom, according to Paul. 
For such a freedom is really just an impoverished idea of it, but a shadow of the real freedom that Christ has come to bring, the real freedom that alone can lead us to joy or purpose or meaning. True Christian freedom reflects the very freedom that originates in the heart of God. As Joanna Adams points out in the beginning, when God created humankind, God could have made us puppet-like. So that whenever God, whatever God wanted us to do, God could simply pull a string and we would do it. But what kind of relationship would that be? Certainly no love would be possible, for love requires freedom. God created us, women and men, with the capacity and the responsibility to act as free agents. The desire for freedom is not simply a function of the human spirit, not simply something that philosophers that Thomas Jefferson drew upon came up with. No, its source is nothing less than the free will of the living God. The true freedom that Paul speaks is mirrored in Jesus Christ. Look what Jesus did with his freedom. He was in the form of God but did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's a hymn that Paul quotes in Philippians. In the same spirit, instead of using their freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, Paul wants the Galatian church to use that freedom through love to become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, he writes. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. As William Inge, the former dean of St. Paul Cathedral in London, put it, God promised to make you free. But God did not promise to make you independent. We're not created to be an island. We are created, created for relationships, for community. Christian freedom, therefore, is not a matter of being freed from commitments and relationships. Instead, it is a freedom to be in good and healthy relationships. Christian freedom is not a matter of being freed from obligations so that we can spend our money however we want it on ourselves. No, Christian freedom is the freedom to give freely and generous to others as we recognize our mutual interdependence and we recognize that all that we have is a gift from God. Self-indulgence never results in freedom or lasting fulfillment. True freedom, the kind our souls hunger for, is what you give, what you receive when you give yourself away in love and service. Jesus Christ is our model, which means that true freedom is found in grace and forgiveness. Terry Sutherland, who was imprisoned for seven years by the Hezbollah in Lebanon, once said that his freedom did not really begin on the day he was released from his imprisonment. Instead, he said, it began when I could thank God, let go of my hatred, and truly forgive the captors who had mistreated me for seven years. Then, 
I was free because I was no longer bound by my anger and hatred. What does freedom itself, indulgence, look like? Such false freedom results in jealousy and anger, in quarrels and envy and drunkenness and carousing, Paul writes. What does true freedom look like? The one that is God's gift to us through Jesus Christ, by its fruit we shall know it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, generosity, gentleness, self-control. And true freedom, Christian freedom, wants to be contagious. It's not enough for me to be free. My freedom is incomplete until others are similarly free. In 1944, in the midst of World War II, Judge Learned Hand was invited to speak at the I Am an American Day. It was a day when people became naturalized citizens. He spoke to over a million people in Central Park on that day. He was not known as a great orator. His opinions were certainly well respected and law students still study them, but he was not known as a great speaker. But his speech would be recorded first in its entirety in the New York Times and later in Life Magazine and Reader's Digest. In his speech, he asked, what is the spirit of liberty? This was his answer. I cannot define it. I can only tell you my own faith. The spirit of liberty is a spirit which seeks to understand the minds of other men and women. The spirit of liberty is a spirit which weighs their interests alongside its own without bias. The spirit of liberty remembers that not even a sparrow falls to earth unheeded. The spirit of liberty is the spirit of him who near 2,000 years ago taught mankind that lesson it has never learned but has never quite forgotten. That there may be a kingdom where the least shall be heard and considered side by side with the greatest. Friends, that kingdom is the one to which we Christians pledge our allegiance. One in which there is indeed liberty and justice for all. For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. No, let us use our freedom for love and service. A love and service that loves and serves broadly and deeply. For that is how Christ loves and serves us. Amen.